0: got to go get through all those. There's got to be an easier way, I would think. Uh, does it have a slider on the left side? Well, we'll start it while well, you're looking to see if you can find it. I need to know if I'll be able to give a, a song. Song this song. <laughs> and, and can it be? And can it be that I should be? Oh, I don't know. study in this great uh, letter that's all about the gospel, that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Let's just ask God's uh, help in understanding his word today. Lord, we come to you and we ask that uh, the spirit would have complete freedom and would be very powerful in helping us to understand I mean, we can read things off of a page or off of a digital device even. And and uh, as believers, we have the advantage that we can understand it because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he is the one that illuminates the, these truths to us. So I pray, Lord, that you'd use me, the uh, one speaking this morning, but more importantly, that the Holy Spirit would use the scriptures to give us understanding of how great you are and how you are worthy of our worship. We ask you to take this word and change us, continue, continue to change us or your children from the inside out. So that we can in fact be doing those good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ask this for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. So, Pastor Tom was just referring to uh, what he had read out of Ephesians 2, those first 10 verses are are very deep, (laughs) very wonderful. And then he just happened to mention uh, verse 11 and following about those who were far off being brought near, And, and it is so true, we were far off and God brought us near, but Ephesians 2.11 through the end of the, the chapter and even continuing on in chapter 3 is Paul's explanation to that church of how God took people who were Jewish and Gentiles and brought them together into one people group through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll read that again. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision so gentiles versus jews which is made in the flesh by human hands circumcision was remember that you were at that time separate from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and the strangers to the covenants and the promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you were once far off been brought near by the blood of christ so it's very similar to what we're seeing in Romans chapter 9 through 11, where Paul is vindicating God's dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. He's been explaining the, the gospel in detail, uh, explaining that we, we needed the, the gospel because that's how we get right with God. That's how we get the righteousness of God. And we need it because we're condemned sinners. Every, every single person is born that way. They come into this world separated and far off from God. They need to be declared righteous. Now, God is also making us righteous, but He declares us righteous the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we have peace with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he begins to set us apart from our sin and unto Himself for His glory. And his purposes that we would walk in the good works that he prepared before and that we sh- should walk in. And he did that by changing our standing from being dead in sin to, to being dead to sin. And no longer having power over us. And, 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 and then he says it also meant that we're no longer dead under the condemnation of the law. In fact, we're dead to that condemnation. To the law in the sense that it could no longer condemn us. Because God sees us as righteous, not as sinners when we're in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And then he totally transforms our lives from the inside out when the Holy Spirit comes into us. We're alive in the Spirit. And that changes everything everything for us. And nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever change that. Hallelujah. And we never can be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's like Paul hits a pause. He's like, you know, that makes me think. I probably need to do a explaining uh, about the Jewish-Gentile question, because he's constantly, throughout the letter up to chapter 9, Making it clear that there is this contention that exists even within the church between Jewish and Gentile members of the church, and and then broader than that was the the Judaizers, those who were still you know so fervently saying, well, yeah, you got to believe in the Messiah, but but you've got to keep the law. And he says, you know, I, I I've been addressing that all along, that in Christ, you know, we have we have a new relationship with God, but. I still need to explain a little bit more and vindicate how God has dealt with his people, the Jews in the Old Testament, the chosen nation, and the Gentiles to which he's opened up the glorious gospel. And and the bulk of the church now is made up of Gentiles and not Jewish people. In fact, the bulk of the Jewish nation had rejected the gospel. They were rejecting it. And Paul would go from city to city, first go to the Jews, because it's first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. He'd go first to the Jews in the synagogue, and he would say, Let me give me a you know a portion of the Torah, let me read it for you. That's Jesus. <laughs> he would explain how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was true about God's promises and the covenants and so on in the Old Testament. And some would believe, but most would not. And he would then depart the synagogue and go out into the city and share the good news with the Gentiles. So he needed to do some explaining, as, as they say today, some explaining. Some explaining. And so he has take, taken up a major doctrinal position called Divine Sovereign election. Explaining that salvation is the work of God, the work of the sovereign God, and salvation is based on His choice of us, not our choice of Him. And 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 then he's it's like, but I need to make sure that the Jewish people understand where I'm coming from. I'm not the enemy of Israel. I'm their kinsman, their brother. I long for them to come to know Christ. They had so many privileges and benefits. And it's like it didn't guarantee them anything. It didn't cause them to be right with God. They, they thought it did, but it didn't. And so he, is, he, is, he started out with kind of like, let's go back to, to Abraham. And Abraham t- had two sons by two different women. One was the son of promise and the other was the son of the flesh. Isaac was the son of promise that God miraculously brought about when Abraham and Sarah were both too old to have children. Ishmael, who had been born first 13 years earlier, was the, the son born to Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. And it was their attempt to fulfill God's promise, not God's plan. They had attempted to bring it about. It's like, I've got to have a, you know, a son, and all this is going to come to, and then, uh, well, maybe it will be, you know, through Hagar, the maid servant. We'll just count him as Abraham's son. And God said, "No, no, it's not through Ishmael; it's through Isaac." And further than that, you know, Isaac got married and and he had two sons. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first, and Jacob second, right afterwards. And and God said, "It wasn't through Esau; it's through Jacob." And the point that He's making in in the first verses in chapter 9 is a God's sovereign choice is what matters. God's sovereign choice. His election. And, and it wasn't all of Abraham's descendants, even though the Jews generally thought that that would be the case. If you were an Abra- a descendant of Abraham through Isaac, then you're okay. You're going to be okay. And, and he's making the point, no, it's never been that way. It's never been that way. It was never God's intended purpose that all Jews would be saved. They must be saved the same way that anyone is saved and that is by grace through faith in what God has revealed. And the Old Testament was limited when we get to the New Testament. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 14 through 18 in chapter 9, which we started last week, he takes up uh, this fuller explanation about divine sovereign election and he uh, we spent some time talking about that That God's purpose in election is to show mercy. God's purpose in election is to show mercy. It's not a matter of justice, because you see people, the Jewish people were basically saying, the Jewish objector that's been in the letter so far, he's, he said, well, that doesn't sound fair. God, God just, you know, he chooses uh, Jacob arbitrarily, uh, rather than Esau. That doesn't sound fair, and and so he's asking and answering the objector's you know, concerns. Is God unfair? Is God unfair? Well, not if you understand that God's election was never based on his justice. It was based on his mercy. Not that justice is thrown out the window. But divine sovereign election is based on or founded in God's mercy. What shall we say? He says, is there injustice with God? By no means. By no means, and then he, what he does is he more fully explains that with a principle, and then an inference from that principle, and an illustration of the principle, and then in verse eighteen he gives the final conclusion to that, and then he's going to proceed from there, and is like uh, going to deal more with the challenge of the objector to God's justice and righteousness. So that that's where we're headed. That's where we've been and where we're headed. So we're really on this idea that the principle, as we talked about last week, is principle is election is founded in God's mercy, right? It's founded in God's mercy. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy, not justice, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So the principle of election, again, is founded on God's... This half understands it. I'm not sure about this half. God's election is founded in his mercy. There you go. Thank you. Interactive this morning. okay? Interactive. Let's move to the inference. The inference that comes from that principle that election is founded in God's mercy. The inference is election does not depend on human volition. It does not depend on human volition. He states it this way in verse 16. So then, it do, does not depend on human will... Or on or exertion, but on God who has mercy. mercy. There you go. There it is again. So what he's saying is one cannot will himself, herself, to be a child of God. Though that is what many people think is happening when they say, I'm going to choose to become a Christian. It's their will being exercised. I'm making this choice to become a Christian. And they, they, he said more than that, A person can't exert themselves enough in good works to become a a member of God's family. Though, once again, that is what many people are thinking. It's like, if I just am good enough, if I just keep the law well enough, if I'm better than other people doing good works, then, you know, I'll be a child of God. And, and in fact, the, the word exertion that he uses in verse 16 refers to one pushing themselves to the limit uh, of one's powers uh, in an attempt to go forward, striving to advance. And, and the focus is entirely, entirely on the effort that a person puts forward to accomplish something. It's it, it a word that's translated in, like the NAS in the Legacy Standard Bible, I, I think it's translated as run. It doesn't depend on the one who runs. And it is the word for running. And it was a word that was used in, uh, in the races, where a racer would be running a race, giving it his all to win the prize. And that was what a lot of people are thinking. If I just exert myself, if I run hard enough towards good works, I'll be okay. So Paul's saying no. People cannot will themselves to be right with God, and they cannot Pursue it as if they could win justification, uh, you know, being declared righteous before God, based on how much effort they put into being a good person. Unless there are a lot of people that think that way. In contrast, Paul, as he puts it, says that election and salvation are determined by God's mercy. mercy. That's right, in choosing some for salvation and not others like Jacob and not Esau, like Isaac and not Ishmael. So the Gospel of John actually declares the same truth this way. It's in chapter 1, I'll just read it to you, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which is a reference to Christ, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's the creator God. Yet the world did not know him. And then it says, He came to his own, his own things, his own creation. It's in the neuter. And and his own people, his own people, it's referring to the nation of Israel here, his own people did not receive him. If you've read the Gospels, you know that. They rejected him and they crucified him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or authority to become children of God who were born, not of blood. It's not passed down from parent to child. Nor of the will of the flesh. I can will myself. Be good enough. I can do it. I can do it. Yes, I can. I'm that little train going up that hill. I can make it. No. It's not by the will of flesh, nor the will of man. It isn't based on man's choice, but of God. It's the same point Paul is making here. That divine sovereign election is founded in God's mercy, not dependent upon human volition, either the will of man or how much effort they put into being good. The illustration that he uses comes next. The illustration is Pharaoh. That's verse 17. He moves actually from the leader of Israel, Moses, that he's just mentioned previous to that, to the ruler of Egypt, to oppressed Israel. And that's Pharaoh. Notice how he puts it. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's taken out of Exodus. God said to Pharaoh, and now Paul is making it clear to us, that God said to him, that I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's dealings with Pharaoh is an example, it's an illustration, if you will, of the truth that he, God, acts sovereignly in showing mercy and compassion to some and not to others. Notice the the language. For this very purpose. For this very purpose. Which makes it clear that God's purposes and plans were being advanced through the evil choices that Pharaoh made in relation to the children of Israel. God says, I raised you up. He raised Pharaoh up in the sense that he not only brought him into existence, since he is the creator God who gives life and light to men, but he raised him up, meaning that he put him in a position of being ruler over Egypt, and that he preserved Pharaoh through the plagues that were brought upon Egypt, why? To accomplish his purposes through him, through Pharaoh. So the purpose behind God doing this is then explained by Paul. He says, or, and by God, uh, in the, even to Pharaoh, that he would show his power in Pharaoh. In Pharaoh, and that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And, and so that's still, and so what God did through Pharaoh, clearly one in, on whom he had not shown mercy, Right? Let go to his own end. That what God did through Pharaoh and the plagues that he brought upon uh, Egypt so that Israel could be led out of slavery was a, a great demonstration, wasn't it? Of what? His power. His power to accomplish whatever he wants to. His power. And, you know, that power was spread far and wide it was spread far and wide. Other nations took note of what this great God did. So I went back, I was thinking through, uh, you know, Israel, when they finally got let out of the land, and they they traveled to the promised land, they, they faced enemies, especially after the 40 years of wilderness wandering, because they refused to believe God the first time when they got to the the boundary. Anyway, they, they finally make it back there and they face the Amorites and the Moabites, etc., and, and so on and so forth, and God gives them great victories over, uh, over those people. And then we come to the book of Judges or, or Joshua, where Moses has died and Joshua is, is going to replace him as the leader to bring the children of Israel into the land. And the first city that they conquer in in the land, is Jericho, right? And you probably know this story, you've read through it, and they, you know, God told them, okay, this is what I want you to do, travel around the city, you know, and, and yell, and that kind of thing, and seven days you do that, and the last day you, you say this, and, and then the walls fall, fell down, right? Well, before that happened, they sent spies into the land, and two guys ended up in Jericho, they need to spy the fortifications, all of that. And they end up at a woman's house by the name of Rahab. And Rahab hides them. And in fact, the soldiers come and search her house, and she's got them up on the roof under some flax or some kind of crop hiding up there. And then she talks to them. So in verse 8 in in Joshua 2, we read, And Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign then when you, That you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver us out uh, our lives from death. Did you hear what she said to those men? Uh, we've heard the stories. What did God say to Pharaoh? So that my name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth. that The power that I've demonstrated would be proclaimed elsewhere. And that is the most clear demonstration of that. Here's this woman. She is a prostitute. By the way, she ends up in the genealogy of Christ. How glorious is that by God? To save a woman, uh, a Gentile woman, and she would be in the genealogy of Christ. She understood it. And everyone in the city understood it. Everyone in in the, the promised land understood it. This is a force coming and we don't stand a chance. That's exactly what God had said he would do. So this illustration clearly indicates that God only, not only has a, a, a purpose for those that He sovereignly chose to be saved, to to those that He would show mercy and compassion, but also for sinners who resist and rebel against Him. You know, those that He chose to harden, like Pharaoh, and this is similar to Proverbs sixteen four, which. Says this, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. We will see more clearly, you know, part in the next paragraph what some of that specific purpose was for God's use of those who had resisted Him. So we go from a principle God's election is, is founded on mercy, it's not founded in dependent on human volition. And he uses Pharaoh as an example of that. And then he gives the concluding statement in verse 18. And there we read, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul is basically in giving a concluding reason. People should not believe that God is unfair in his dealings, in his sovereign election of some and not others, because he simply... As God, as a sovereign, shows mercy to some and not to others, and shows compassion to some and not others. And basically, this is telling us that we must fully accept that God has a right to do whatever he purposes to do. And we have no right to judge him for who he is or what he chooses to do. So if you're filling in your insert, that is, our struggle with divine sovereign election, which a lot of people have, right? We've talked about that. A lot of people struggle with divine sovereign election. Even believers will struggle with it. But it doesn't change who God is. And it doesn't change what he chooses to do. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do because of who he is. And as we look at this statement about him showing mercy on whomever he wills and hardening whomever he wills, we have believed the gospel this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we rejoice in it, don't we? That God has poured out His mercy on us. We should rejoice in that. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad there's at least one hallelujah out of that. We should rejoice in that. Rejoice. Rejoice, as we were seeing earlier, that God willed to pour out His mercy on us. And He called us to believe in His Son. He drew us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But, I think we tend to still struggle a little bit with the whole idea that he hardens whomever he wills. Now it might do us well then to consider the case of Pharaoh just a little bit further. Whom God, uh, you know, or whom Paul has already mentioned, you know, that for this reason I raised Pharaoh up and so on. So you you think of Pharaoh and you've got to go to Exodus. We're not going to go there now. I'm going to give you some references. If you want to write them down, you can. but the point will be clear in Exodus, we read of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God a number of times. Ah, but it's significant to notice about the same number of times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart so. It's, it's found in these verses. Uh, you can write them down or not. It's in Exodus 7 3 and verse 13, verse 14, verse 22. So a number of them in chapter 7. In chapter 8 and verse 15. In chapter 9 and verse 7 and, and 12 and 34 and 35. And then in chapter 10 and verse 1 and verse 20 and 27. And then again in 11. Chapter 11, verse 10. So, what are we to make of this? Uh, That God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, we should understand this uh, in the sense that even if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it was not disconnected from Pharaoh hardening his own heart. You should get that as you're reading through those verses, as you read through that section of Exodus. God hardened his heart but it was not disconnected to Pharaoh hardening his own heart So if we if we were to conclude that you know Pharaoh well he only hardened his own heart because you know, God hardened his heart first understand God didn't harden the heart of an innocent man you know of a neutral creature Pharaoh was a sinner and an enemy of God. And I'm not sure that we should even conclude that, you know, God did it first and then Pharaoh did it second. It could be that way, but it's not declared that way. But even if that is true, it was not coming from a, a neutral, innocent creature. No, he was a sinner and an enemy of God and he was born that way. And his his sin preceded his heart being hardened, both by God and by himself. God's hardening of anyone's heart. Because he has mercy on whom he will, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God's, God's hardening of anyone's heart is always preceded by that person's sinfulness and deservedness of God's judgment on them for their sin. Now, we must not make the mistake. Please hear this. We must not make the mistake of thinking that God hardening someone like Pharaoh or anyone else is the same thing as God making a person a sinner. God doesn't make anyone a sinner. He never tempts anyone to sin. He never causes anyone to sin. He doesn't make a person a sinner. Each and every person is born a sinner and chooses to sin. And God only hardens them to use them. To what end? That his power would be proclaimed in all the earth. That his mercy towards those that he has chosen to show mercy could be proclaimed in all the earth. I think of uh, Matthew 13, uh, the parable of the, the sower that Jesus teaches there. And then the disciples come and say, well, why, why are you talking in you know, parables? It seems like it's confusing people. And listen to Jesus as he explains this. He says, to them, to you it has been given to, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, so he quotes out of Isaiah, you in chapter six of Isaiah, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. It's the same point. It's like Jesus speaking in parables to hide things from the religious leaders who are already hardened toward him. And yet, it would reveal truth to those on whom he had shown mercy and 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 those that resist get harder and harder. You say, "Well, is that God hardening them?" Yes. Is that hardening themselves? Yes. Cuz hardening is always uh, you know, connected to what you were born as, a sinner, an enemy of God, helpless to do anything about it. You must be shown mercy if you are to become a child of God. And and so, you know, we get here at the end of verse 18 and Paul says I, I know that's not all i got to face when it comes to the, the objector I know what he's going to say so let's read verse 19 through 29 of Romans 9 this next section and we'll see what he he says you'll say to me then we're on the back side of your insert by the way if you haven't figured that out yet you'll say to me then So who will say to him? The objector, right? The objector. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? uh, Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? As the potter, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before and for glory? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, "Those who were not my people, I will call my people; and her who is not my uh, not beloved, I will call beloved." And in the very place it was said to them, "You are not my people," there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, "Though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sense upon the earth fully." And without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So what we see in these verses is a challenge to God's fairness, a challenge of God's justice, his righteousness. So Paul moves from the objector asking a question was is that fair? You know, I, I hear what you're saying, Paul. And I, I think I've got the right premise. And then Paul basically says, but you got the wrong conclusion to it. Right? a question's asked. you got the right premise, wrong conclusion. He moves from the one asking a question to accusations made against God's justice and righteousness. That's, that's a, a, a flow change. It's a harsher thing that is going on here. And then the apostle actually anticipates the objector's response to what he, he has said regarding God's God showing mercy to whoever he, who, whoever he wills and, and hardening whomever he wills. And, and you see that when he says that. You, you will say to me then. So the objector essentially concludes that if what Paul has said is true, then God has no right to hold anyone to account for their sin because no one can resist the sovereign will of God. That's what they are basically accusing God of. That's not right. That's not just. So in the objectors thinking, God would be unfair or unjust to hold Pharaoh or anyone else at fault since they couldn't resist his will. They, they couldn't do anything about it. How, how can people be held responsible? How can they be blamed for their unbelief even, and, and certainly for their sin and their end, when it's determined by God? Again, what the objector would say is not just an interrogative question. It's like, how does this work? He's not, he's not saying that. How how could God do this? It's not an honest question. It's an accusatory question, and so it is a challenge, an accusation against God's righteousness and justice. And if we thought Ephesians one and two was heavy, this is heavy stuff, isn't it? It's heavy stuff. I'm glad that Paul gives us some answers, some understanding. So what we find in, in this accusation, uh, well, we see it in, in verse 19, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And in those words, I think, are hidden all the accusations and bitter charges of people against God. Something, you know, that you could throw in there. God is responsible for human evil. A good God would not allow such suffering to exist in the world. God ultimately is to blame if a person doesn't believe the gospel, not the person. It is not right. It is not right for God to to judge people if they choose not to believe in him. And therefore, if God is not absolute if if God is absolutely sovereign, then he is not worth believing in or following. And if that's the way of God, then He's not worthy of our worship. I was watching a, a Western movie the other night. Some of you may have seen it, Open Range, and there's a point where one of the the younger men dies. The friends of the two main characters, and and they they're, they buried the body. And the one says to the other, "It's like hey, I don't. You want to say some words, you know?" So uh, I don't think I can say some words because i, I want I'm gonna have words with him, meaning God that's this I'm going to have words with God accusation he shouldn't have done this. he shouldn't allow this person to to die. He was a good man he was a a friend, and that is that kind of idea that's being expressed. so what do we do then with this truth of God's you know sovereign Divine election, this essential truth about God's nature, because that's what it is. This accuser, Paul indicates, uses it to blame God for all kinds of wrong, that, you know, all the evil in the world, all that is unfair. That's what he accuses God of. And what we see is that Paul does not just reprove this person as he's been reproving the objector up to this point in the letter where he says, "Ah, by no means, you've got the right premise, but the wrong conclusion. No, he doesn't just reprove this person. He rejects him. He rejects him. He doesn't just say that the accuser has come to the wrong conclusion, but he has absolutely no right to even suggest what he is suggesting. Paul argues that such questions are illegitimate. They're questions that creatures have no right to ask of the Creator. He emphasizes this by the use of three contrasts in the the next few verses. Three contrasts. The creature versus the Creator. The potter versus the clay. And the vessels of wrath versus vessels of of mercy. So the creature versus the creator is in verse 20. And so Paul deals with this accuser by first showing his statement is an accusation that is impious. It's, it's blasphemous. He says, but who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God. And, and with that statement, he puts the accuser in his place. Understand that's what he's doing. And his point is that the creature has no right to ask these kinds of questions, to question the purposes and doings of the Creator. I mean, and, and by the way, O oh, man is actually the very first thing in the Greek text. O oh, man, who do you think you are? And he puts God at the very end. And what he's basically saying is there's a great distance between sinful man and holy God. Mm. That's the point he's making. Oh man, it's so, so strong the way that he puts it. Isn't it the height of folly that those created by God would dare to question and accuse the one to whom they owe their very existence? Yeah. And with this question, the accuser actually dares condemn the Creator. That's what he's doing. He's condemning the Creator In essence, the accuser is claiming that his standard of justice, what is right or wrong, good or evil, and so on, his sense of right and wrong exceeds God's. Hmm. Now, again, notice what he says. This man answers back to God. (laughs) It's like, that is definitely not what would be expected as an action directed toward the creator God by the creature. Think of Adam and after he sinned. He's hiding from God. God had to draw him out. This man's, you know, full in the face of God, if you will, accusing him of being unjust and unrighteous. And, you know, this is not unlike what a father may say to one of his children at a certain time in life. I can think of similar conversations that I've had with my children and when they were growing up, one in particular, But, you know, it might be something like, don't you talk back to me, your mother. I mean, your mother and I made you. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for us. And you wouldn't have all the benefits that you enjoy by being in our family. Don't you talk back to me. I remember one time telling this one of our children, don't you talk to your mother that way. Don't you dare talk to her that way. That's what Paul's saying. Who do you think you are, oh old man, talking back to God? Whew. And so the accuser's questions are illegitimate. And, and they're ones that the creature has absolutely no right to even ask. And Paul leaves it at that, doesn't he? he didn't. You notice he doesn't actually answer the question. He just leaves it at that. The creature is demanding that God gives an answer on the basis of the creature. And oh, by the way, there are answers to the question. Paul chooses not to answer them directly. Because he wants to make his point all the more clear. And that is that the creature demanding that God give an account on the, on the basis of the, the creature's standards, his ideas of right or wrong or good and evil, that's just, that's wrong. Wesley One of the Wesley brothers put it this way. Little, impotent, ignorant man is set over against the great God whose purpose runs throughout the whole creation and who moves people and nations. And then another author writes, this puny pipsqueak of a man dares to stand up and challenge the justice of God. That's the flavor of what Paul is writing. So the scenario is similar isn't it, to what we read of in the book of Job? If you're familiar with the story of Job, you know that Job experiences a great deal of suffering in his life at the front end of the book, at the hands of Satan, and by God's will. Not just by God's allowance, but by God's will. And in the first part of the book, Job is essentially asking this question, Why God? Why? But after he's through being... You know, comforted and counseled, I say that sarcastically, he wasn't comforted, but counseled by his three supposed wise friends, he begins to change himself. And he, he moves from asking why to demanding an answer from God. And, and he proceeds to explain how unfair it is how God has dealt with him, uh, you know, the way that he has. And he essentially tries to school God. He said, "You know, he's like, I can't wait till I stand before you. I'm going to make it clear you're wrong. You've got some explaining to to do to me, God." And you know, he he, he thought he deserved much better from God. And, and so, you read on, and the latter part of the book, God speaks to Job, and, and he gives him a two part lesson. A two-part lesson on the role of the creator and the role of the creature with the purpose of showing him how insignificant and small he is compared to the one to whom he owes his existence. the, The God who rules over all things. And you can read about God's part one lesson in chapters 38 and 39. And then God ends part one of the lesson saying to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. It's like, okay, Job, you've been telling me all along. You, you want to get in my face. You want to argue with me. You're finding fault. In, go ahead and answer my question. <laughs> Job responds by saying, uh, behold, I'm a, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I shut up my mouth. <laughs> I'm gonna stop speaking. I love that, and reminds me of that song. I shut up your mouth. I shut up your mouth. I can't even do it like the rap rappers did. But he, you know, he had been arguing with the guy and he says, no, "I'm not gonna argue <laughs> anymore." He says, "I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further." In chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. And then God continues speaking to him, giving part 2 of the lesson that God is sovereign and man is not. In chapters 40, verses 6, all the way through chapter 41, verse 34. And finally, when God had finished part 2 of his lesson on his own greatness compared to humans, Job again responds. And this is what he says. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes himself from earlier. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? <laughs> things too, and he says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes himself from earlier again. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you'll make it known to me. That's what he had said earlier to God. And then he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So it's clear, isn't it, that Job understood the very point that Paul's making in the letter to the Romans. That the creature has no right, absolutely no right, to question the justice and righteousness of sovereign God the creator. Then he moves to an illustration. The potter and the clay in verses 20 and 21. And that second contrast you know, is, is again of the creator and the creator. I mean the creature, isn't it? It's a, the main point is creator versus creature. Here's an illustration of it. He says, well, what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has as the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Now, would anyone would anyone really question, uh, you know, the, that the potter has a right to take a lump of clay, split it in two, and from the one lump of clay to make a beautiful vase that would be decorative, sitting in a living room, and then take the other half of that same lump of clay and make another. Container to hold bacon grease in your kitchen, and that's what he basically means by honorable and dishonorable. He's not talking about sin and righteousness. he's talking about the use of these vessels, right? These vessels that are you know descriptive of, of, of people. The potter has the right to do whatever he wants to do, and that is essentially the idea that he's communicating. Of course, the, the potter has the right to do whatever he wants with a lump of clay. No one has the right to tell the potter what he should do with the clay. Especially the clay. Do you get that? <laughs> the clay's gonna talk back to the potter? Come on. At this point, many people would say, and I understand this, they they would say, but people are not clay. It's perfectly acceptable for the potter to do what he wants with the clay. But people are more than mere clay. We're people. We have feelings. We have sensitivities. We have volition. Your analogy, Paul, doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Well, that's a good point. It really, it's a good point. But let's examine it just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, we are going to... Be here for not at least another two hours. No, no, hang with me. We got to get through this section today, today, because the Lord might come, and I want to make sure I get through it today. But anyway, well, so that's a good point. But just what kind of human beings are we? We're human beings. We're not clay and inanimate object, right? That kind of thing. We have feelings, sensitivities, volition, so on. But what kind of people are we? Are are we morally neutral people? Are we good and righteous, each and every one? Are we all seeking God and waiting to see if he might graciously show us mercy? Of course not. I mean, that's not how the scriptures describe people, is it? Every man Every woman, every child is born a sinner. Every single person coming into this world is unrighteousness and falls short of the glory of God. That sounds like Romans 3, doesn't it? No one seeks for God. That's also in Romans 3. All are sinners and enemies of God and unable, unable to to do anything about their condition on their own. That's what kind of people we are. That's how we enter into this world. So we may agree with the objector that it would be not, you know, it wouldn't be right for God to create sinners simply to punish them. But that is not what Paul is saying. Get that. Paul's not saying that God created sinners to punish them. God did not create some as sinners and some as saints. He's not saying, well, you know, these sinners that I create, I want to punish them. But, you know, these saints, I want to to bless them. That isn't how his creation went. He's saying that God created people. And that people chose to sin. Adam brought it on everyone, right? People chose to sin. And then God dealt with them all as sinners. Some he showed mercy. And some he did not. That's what he's saying. And the point that Paul is stressing them is that God has the right as the creator or as the potter to choose to show mercy to a select group of sinners and refrain from showing mercy to others. And those who are chosen are not selected because they're special clay. No, it's all from the same lump, isn't it? Same clay. They're not chosen because they're special clay. Clay. Not, you know, it's not because God knew that they would become good people or that they would believe the gospel. That's not divine sovereign election. But because God is merciful. That's why. He's merciful. Others, he lets go to the end, that they choose for themselves as sinners who harden themselves against Him. So let me say it again the focus of divine sovereign election must be on God's grace and mercy and not on his justice. Because if justice was all that was involved, then we would all be condemned as sinners and remain that way. All would face his divine wrath. But because God is merciful and gracious, he in his justice had his Son who had not sinned, to become the sin bearer. That we might through him become the righteousness of God. That's mercy. And then he ends with vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy and, and the remaining part of this. And, and Paul makes this final point of contrast to say don't be judging God about Fairness, about justice. Be thanking God for mercy. So he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and make known his power, has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known his riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he he makes it clear that although God could have demonstrated his justice at any time by pouring out his wrath on the wicked, he didn't. He didn't. He, he endured with much patience. It says these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and in order to make the abundance of the riches of his grace and mercy known to those who are vessels on whom he has shown mercy, those that he's prepared for glory. And I'm I'm quite certain that all of us have wondered at times, well, why hasn't God? Why hasn't God poured out His wrath in clear and demonstrable ways on this, you know, sinful culture in which we live? Ah, people have been asking that throughout the history of nations. But we—I think people are asking that too. Why isn't God just dealing with all these, you know, messed-up politicians and these evil judges and? You know the screwed up way that people are thinking about sex and gender, and you know green energy. Why doesn't God just judge them? You know, it's like it's like we want that to happen. We're unsure why God hasn't already shown Himself in judgment. But consider consider how God over millennium, not just the last two, but throughout human history, those millenniums, millennia. I guess would be the plural, has withheld, has withheld his righteous indignation and put up with the snarling, nasty, blasphemous, um, the accusing remarks of people and he lets them continue to pour out their hatred toward him. He endures listening to the cheap and shoddy and vulgar things that people say about him. He has allowed them to treat him with disdain, hostility, and abuse. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross and never doing what we might expect that he would do. Judge them. But rather he is patiently enduring, waiting a coming day. Waiting for a coming day. Why does he not act then? Why does he patiently endure such hostility? He he does so with one purpose in mind, with one purpose in mind that he might be glorified by making known the riches of his grace and mercy on those people that he has chosen and prepared for glory. Now it should probably be pointed out that there is a certain amount of disagreement about who it is that prepared these vessels of wrath for destruction. Some conclude it was God. That he predestined some people to damnation, to receive his wrath and spend forever away from him, his glory in the lake of fire. Others conclude that it was Satan who is responsible for their condition and their end. And still others understand that it's the people themselves who are responsible for their end. Now what I'm going to say next is, it's a little, little, little deep got some grammar things in it. So I would encourage you, you don't have to try to write all this down, but you might want to go back and listen to it again to get this. So the text itself isn't actually clear on this matter, but there are several things that should be noticed in in this. First, God is not mentioned as the subject or the agent or, or the cause of the condition and end of the vessel's of wrath prepared for destruction, where he is specifically identified as the agent or cause, the one who prepares people, vessels of mercy, for glory. So it doesn't say that regarding the vessels of wrath. It just declares that there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But he is specifically identified as the subject of the sentence dealing with the vessels of uh, mercy prepared for glory second the, the participle in verse 22 translated as prepared prepared, you know, vessels of wrath prepared, it's written in the middle voice, it's like there you go we have this in English it, this isn't above us, this isn't just a Greek thing we have active, middle, passive voice, active I did something Middle, I did it to myself. Passive, someone did something to me. Right? That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's written in the middle passive voice. I think it's the middle voice, suggesting that the translation would be better as like self-prepared for, for wrath. It would indicate that those people are responsible themselves. While in verse 23... It is different. There's the verb there, not a private simple. It's a verb, has prepared. And it's in the active voice. Active voice indicating that it's God, who is the subject of the vessels of mercy prepared for glory. That Getting it? You want to get it. I, I know you want to get it. I, it's so important to get. <laughs> Third, The two words translated prepared. You say, well, Well, there are two words translated prepared in these verses. While they're the same in English, they're not in Greek. They come from two different Greek words. Now, while their meaning is almost identical, it's not like I'm making a big deal about the difference in the meaning of these two words, but it is suggesting to us that Paul intends to make a distinction between who does the preparing. On the one hand, the vessels self-prepared for destruction. On the other hand, the vessels that God prepared for glory. And then lastly, there's no beforehand in verse 22 regarding the vessels prepared for destruction. But there is a beforehand previous action regarding the vessels that he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so the difference in these two Two phrases: Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy which he has prepared before him for glory stand out. Uh, those contrasts are significant. What contrast? Well, the lack of clarity in the subject of action in the one but not the other. The middle voice is compared to the active, compared to the active voice. The participle used in one and the active verb used in the other. The two different Greek words used and the absence of action beforehand in the one but not in the other strongly suggests that the vessels of wrath are responsible for their own condition and end, while the vessels of mercy, destined for glory, are made that way by God. That's powerful and important for us to distinguish. So, in my own limited understanding, and I know it's limited, I have a little understanding on many things. But in, in regards to this, all of this points to a scenario that, that before time began, God specifically chose some sinners to receive grace and mercy, that they might escape the wrath that they rightly deserve because they are condemned for their sin. While they let the other sinners go to the end that they choose for themselves to eternal destruction. So, summing that up. In verses 24 through 29, I read it on purpose. Did you notice how Paul emphasizes that God's mercy in his divine sovereign election is for Jews and Gentiles both? He quotes from Isaiah and Hosea to support that position. And, and so the apostle is building an argument throughout this long section 9 through 11, these chapters, vindicating God's dealing with the Jews and how he has brought the Gentiles into his glorious family. So God all, intended, all, all along intended to pour out his grace, grace and mercy on some Jews and some Gentiles. And not to pour out his mercy on most Jews, at least to this day, and more Gentiles. And he did that so that there would be people who are saved from every tongue, nation, and people, to the glory of his name. So, while you've been very attentive, I'm so thankful for that. Can I give you just a few things to remember as I, as I conclude this, uh, I, I would simply summarize what Paul has said in, in chapter 9 this way. Divine sovereign election does not point to or even imply in any way any injustice with God. That he is unfair in any way. But it does highlight in a great way his mercy His mercy. So re- remember these four things. Divine sovereign election is primarily a matter of mercy, not justice. Second, in in his sovereignty, God is free. He is free to extend mercy to whomever, whomever he wills. And third, God is not unfair or unjust in withholding mercy from some sinners. Don't accuse him of that. Don't think of him that way. And then fourth, God's election is, complemented by the doctrine of human responsibility. That's where we're going next. In the end of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10. So, as I consider these things, (laughs) I come to this conclusion. I admit, I admit that the doctrine of divine, sovereign election is an inscrutable mystery which I can't fully understand. And if you think you can, you need to go over it again. But, I don't need to fully comprehend it in all of its complexities. I just have to receive it as being the truth. God is bigger than me. He said it himself. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Don't try to compare you to me or me to you. You're going to lose out every time on that. So, Rather than sinfully accusing God of being unfair, here's what I'm committed to, thanking God that he chose to shower on me his grace and mercy and his love an undeserving sinner. You too? Yeah. Well, Lord, we are thankful for this uh, very detailed explanation by the Apostle Paul concerning this very difficult doctrine, divine, sovereign election, but we are thankful for it as we've gone through it. We, I think, I hope, I pray that our understanding has, has grown. But more than that, that our love and appreciation for you has grown immensely. And while well, we probably still have questions, and we will have questions asked to us by people, we might feel like we don't know the answer, we can just we can come back to this. And even though we may not fully understand it, we receive it as being the truth. You had it written for our benefit and for your glory. So all of us who have been shown mercy, to take the wonderful truth of divine sovereign election and, and share it with other people. And by that, I, I, I mean, Lord, help us to share the gospel with people that Jesus died for sinners. He was buried and rose again the third day in order that people could be saved from the consequence of their sin. And then be able to take those people and and share with them all the more how great you are because you are are God and you are sovereign and you are good and you are gracious and you are merciful. Build us up in our most holy faith by this truth, we pray. And thank you for the food we're going to eat. Pray for your blessing on it and the encouragement that we'll have in sharing it with one another. Praise your holy name. Amen.